Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Who wouldn't want to provide their family with peace of mind during an emotionally difficult life situation such as losing a loved one? or the ability to tell your story on how you would like your children to be cared for when you are no longer able. There are many misconceptions about what an estate plan is and isn't, but one thing for sure, it allows you to tell your story on how to protect your family and provide them peace of mind when you need it most. This week, I speak with estate planning attorney, Kristen Rajagopal, founder of Bequest Law in Atlanta, Georgia. Kristen walks us through what the four critical documents that make up an estate plan, documents that help us through incapacity to documents that help us protect our children and those who mean the most to us when we are no longer here. We talk in great detail regarding the differences between wills and trust, which can often confuse people, including how to choose trustees versus guardians as they serve two distinct and separate roles within your estate plan. Finally, Kristen and I discuss how working with both an estate planning attorney and a wealth advisor can help families fund their trust, an often overlooked component by estate planning attorneys, and a topic that should be front and center with your wealth advisor as well. Please enjoy my conversation with Kristen Rajagopal. Today on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, I have estate planning attorney Kristen Rajagopal from the metro Atlanta area. And today we're gonna be talking about all things estate planning and probably family as we we typically do on this podcast. So Kristen, welcome to the show. We are really excited to have you on board. Thanks so much for having me. So the first question I wanna get into is to talk about what makes up an estate plan because I've been advising people for, gosh, over 20 years now. And when it comes to estate planning, there are still so many stereotypical questions and conversations that I face about, you know, what a will is, what a trust is. And a lot of people get the two confused. They don't know the the major components of what an estate plan is. So why don't we just dive right in there and kind of have you explain to us you know, what an estate plan is, and then we can dive into like what the four big documents that make up an estate plan. Yeah, of course. And I think that that's a great question. And also the most common question I get, just like you do. So my law firm bequest, I formed because I wanted to demystify the estate planning process. I think that a lot of attorneys make this area of law more complicated than it needs to be and are not particularly great at breaking down the the particulars of what exactly an estate plan is and how exactly you put one together. So an estate plan is basically a group of documents 
that helps you make a plan for if you are incapacitated during your lifetime and after you pass away. Most people don't think about that first component, the what happens to me if I am still alive, but I am not able to take care of my own affairs component of estate planning. So the major documents that are most frequently included in an estate plan are powers of attorney, healthcare directives, which depending on the state might be called a living will, a will, a last will and testament, and or a trust. There are lots of different kinds of trusts that people can have, but I most frequently see what's called a revocable living trust. And depending on what someone needs, you can pick and choose among those documents, but typically having at least a power of attorney, a healthcare directive, and a will give you a decent estate plan. Sometimes clients in the middle of a meeting will say, okay, so we've talked about my will, but how about my estate plan? And so the way I like to describe it is that the estate plan is the larger umbrella that the will, power of attorney, healthcare directive, and or trust is under. So why don't we kind of start at the beginning with the incapacity part? Because this is where I nail a lot of common misconceptions, especially with married couples or married partnerships, is that just because you're married, you think that I can sign for, say, my wife, Teresa, and Teresa can sign for me. And when I first meet with people and I crush that stereotype right out of the bat because you can't. You may think you can, but just because you're legally married doesn't give you the legal right to sign for one another. And that's where the durable power of attorney comes into play, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you can break that down to kind of every level of your financial life from your mortgage to your tax payments, to your banking practices, credit cards, et cetera. And if your spouse or someone close to you like a parent can't manage his or her own affairs, you're not going to be able to just call the bank, call the mortgage company, call the IRS and handle things on their behalf unless you have a durable power of attorney. And that's a good thing, right? Because you don't want someone to just be able to call in and make changes to your bank account without your authorization. But it also creates a lot of headaches. You know, often clients say, well, I don't want someone to have this power unless I'm incapacitated, which I completely understand, by the way. And it's a tremendous amount of power to assign to someone. At the same time, having to jump through the hoop of proving that your loved one is incapacitated at the time that you really need to act on their behalf can be really problematic. So I always include that as part of my analysis and drafting the estate plan as well. Yeah, because when you're the most emotionally vulnerable is when you need that document the most. And unfortunately, I've been through that with some of my client families before. And when I typically meet with a new family, especially a younger family, the conversation turns somewhat dark right off the get-go because I'm talking about death. Like, do you guys have an estate plan? Do you have, you know, the right insurance coverage? But it's really, I focus on the estate plan because you're dealing with younger children. So the odds that mom and dad tragically pass away together at the same time are fairly low or remote. But the whole piece of what drives people to, to put together an estate plan from my perspective is to give that peace of mind. Just like people come and work with me 
because at the end of the day, that's really what I'm providing them peace of mind through wealth planning, portfolio management, you know, tax services as well. Same thing with your firm request. At the end of the day, when, when we finally sign those papers for this the state plan, there's that sense of relief that, okay, I know that my kids are covered both from a, a guardian standpoint and a financial standpoint. Yeah, I think that's really right. I mean, that's a phrase that I really focus on as well. I think it's really easy in your line of work and in mine to scare the heck out of people. But I really, that's not the perspective I come at it from. I like to provide that peace of mind in knowing that if you are incapacitated, if you do die in some sort of untimely way, not only are your kids covered, your surviving spouse is covered, people who are dependent on you are covered for the long term. But also the peace of mind that I really try to drive home to people is if you don't have a good estate plan, not only are your own wishes not going to be effectuated, but someone's going to have to pick up the pieces. The probate process for someone who does not have a good estate plan or at least a basic will can be an absolute train wreck. I know you've seen that too. And it just winds up costing so much time and so much money in a time where people are really not an emotional place to deal with it. So even if you don't have particular wishes about what happens, most people care enough about the people who are left behind not to leave a mess for them. Right, exactly. And and the way I kind of frame the estate planning process when I first sit down with families are, it's your ability to tell your story while you're still here. And it keeps it private. That's one of the other things about probate. Probate is public. Anybody could go down to the courthouse and see, and, and we've all heard of these you know, famous people that didn't have an estate plan. Prince comes to mind because I live in Metro Detroit. Aretha Franklin comes to mind. And it's just, it amazes me how people, this is the other way I kind of frame it to families. If you're not gonna do it for yourselves, to your point, Kristen, do it for your loved ones because you want to avoid probate. Like I'd say the plague, but now we can use the COVID virus instead. <laughs> That's exactly right. And at least in Georgia, if you have a married couple with at least one child and you don't have a will, the surviving spouse doesn't inherit everything. Part of it goes to the child. And so that just creates a nightmare scenario where either the surviving spouse doesn't have enough money to raise that child or is having to get someone to sign off on the child's behalf, creating potential for litigation later on between the surviving spouse and the child. It's just an absolute disaster. So even if you don't want to do anything else in the estate planning process, having a basic will that's signed properly is super important. That's really interesting because I didn't know that. And it kind of leads into like how you and I actually met. So. I have clients all over the country now, and I have a few families now that are in the Atlanta area, and I actually found you through the, the XYPN planning network that I'm a part of, which I'm so grateful for because you were a true professional to work with, with, with my family down there. And to your point, every state's different, and I did not know that about Georgia. Yeah, I mean, you really have to have a good local council to tell you those nuanced rules because the law is 
state driven and based on such antiquated principles that it's very hard to know what they're going to be. So we've talked a little bit about the incapacity planning. So that covers, you know, durable power attorney allows you to, you know, sign legally for somebody else. Likewise, healthcare power attorney makes you responsible for making medical decisions on somebody's behalf. So we've covered those two documents. Let's kind of dive into the wills and the trust. Because like I mentioned earlier, I think people, maybe they went out and got a will once they had their kids were born and they didn't do anything else. Talk about what exactly a will does and probably just as importantly, what a will does not do. Yeah. By and large, when people, again, when they think of estate planning, they think of a will. And so what a will is, is a contract that goes into effect when you die. It says at a high level, who gets what, who's in charge of giving out those gifts, that's called the executor, and what you want to have happen to your body, cremation versus burial, and who you want to take care of your kids. So these things are obviously important, of course. It's very important to have those things in place. But what it doesn't do that you alluded to earlier is it does not allow you to achieve any of those things privately and outside of the probate court. So in Georgia, the probate court has traditionally been fairly efficient. It really varies state to state. COVID has really derailed all court proceedings, especially in the probate court. So those going through probate right now are in a bit of a disaster situation. So let me pause for one second and explain what probate is. So Probate is the process of legally proving your will to the court. So someone passes away with a will, their executor takes the will to the probate court with a petition saying, hey, this is a valid will. Let me do the things that this will tells me to do. Give this money to my surviving spouse or my kids or my parents. So everything that happens in the probate court is public. So I could go down to the probate court and pull anyone's will. It's a publicly filed document, just like any, any court case would be. The other thing that the will does not do is it does not allow you to exercise that much control over things after you pass away. So let's imagine that you want to leave money to your wife, but you also want to make sure that your wife provides for your kids after she passes away. Well, you cannot exercise that control through your will. You can hope that she drafts her will to say she's going to take care of your kids, but she can always change that will after you pass away. So it only allows so much control. A revocable trust, on the other hand, is a legal entity that you put your stuff into during your lifetime. And by your stuff, I mean your house, your bank accounts, you can have your retirement and life insurance flow through it. And you can design to the most minute detail who gets what and when, controlling all aspects of your estate plan and if you fund it properly, meaning moving your assets into it properly, then you avoid probate altogether. So no need to deal with the probate court, all of your estate planning and disposition of assets are private and you're controlling really what happens after your death and making things easier for your loved ones in the process. So let's talk about the term that I use, and I, I know you do as well, is, is funding. Um, a lot of people don't necessarily know what funding a trust means and, and how you go about it. That's one of the reasons why I enjoyed working with you so much because we share that same principle where we're working together to make sure that 
we get all of our clients' assets into the trust so that way they don't fall out into potential probate situation. So what does that mean, funding, and how do you go about funding a trust? Yeah, again, great question. So the thing that I see a lot, and I think you see a lot too, is people saying, oh, yeah, I have a trust. And then I say, okay, well, let's walk through what your assets are and how you've moved them into your trust. And they kind of look at me with a blank stare, like, what are you talking about? I have a trust. It's done. Exactly. Well, the trust process is a multi-step process. So first you draft and sign the trust, and then you need to put things into it. If you don't have your assets in your trust, it does not work. So again, what do I mean by that? What is funding? I'm just going to go through a couple of assets and what that would look like and then give you more of a high-level overview. So funding is, again, putting your assets in your trust. With your house, you would have to record a new deed, deeding your house to your trust, which is, by the way, much easier than it sounds like it's going to be. Make changes to your bank account to either have them in the name of the trust or payable to the trust on your death. Consider naming your trust as the beneficiary of your life insurance. Again, factual situations vary. Different things make sense for different people. But basically, it's funding is a analysis of all of your assets, what you have, where they are, and how you move that particular thing into the trust. The thing that breaks my heart is to see someone who passes away with a trust that is 80% funded and they've a couple of bank accounts out because they forgot about their trust or they just never managed to get it in. And that means that they have to go through probate and also trust administration, which just to my mind is a disaster. So whenever I do a, a trust for someone, I provide a detailed checklist, a letter, and follow up with them to make sure that they've really transferred their assets in the way that we discussed. Because otherwise, it's just not working right. And then what is the point of me drafting your estate plan? I mean, I really want to help people and make sure that things are working properly for them. Right. So one of the things that I know I do, like when I'm sitting down with with a family and doing their annual review is making sure that, you know, we didn't add a an account like a, you know, IRA or taxable brokerage account or a new high yield money market account online or something like that. I we go through that and make sure that we funded it properly, meaning, you know, most cases, you know, if you're in a married relationship, spouse is primary beneficiary and then trust is, you know, secondary beneficiary. Do you have some kind of a review process with your clients that you do on a some kind of frequent basis, whether it's annual, three years, five years? I was so grateful to work with you on our shared client because I think that having that kind of team approach to funding of a trust and just the financial and estate planning generally is the most successful for clients. So what I do when there's wealth manager like you involved, like we did with our shared client, is I share the checklist, the letter, the documents so that we can be on the same page on an ongoing basis. So I say to the client, Listen, when you get a new asset that is large, call me, email me, ask your wealth manager, have wealth manager ask me so that we can make sure it's in the trust. I also follow up with clients on an annual basis to say, hey, remember when we talked about funding your trust? How's it going? Here's the checklist. Here's what we talked about as a reminder. 
do you need help? I have clients call me every day, every other day and say, hey, I'm buying this house. Hey, I got a new bank account. What do I do? And I'm always happy to take those calls and emails because I really just want their estate plans to work for them. So actually, that's a point I wanted to come back to you that you had mentioned. When it comes to deeding your trust into your estate plan, I'm familiar with a couple of different ways to do that. Can you walk us through, because you had mentioned it's not as difficult as it sounds. Yeah. So basically, our signing meetings, the signing meetings I have with my clients when we're signing all of this, all of these estate planning documents, it's kind of like a real estate closing, right? You know, you're flipping through all the pages and signing and signing. So one of the documents that I have my clients sign is a new deed, which basically would be similar to what you'd sign at a real estate closing, except instead of moving from the old owners to you, your house is now moving from you as an individual to you as the trustee for your trust. So it doesn't have any effect on whether you can sell your house later. It's all just the same. It's just now held under the umbrella of the trust. And that's one thing I should also mention, which is people always say, well, I don't want to put my stuff in a trust because then I won't be able to close my bank account or I won't be able to get money out. The great thing about a revocable trust is that you can control your money just like you do today. It just happens to be under this trust umbrella, which is working for you in case something happens. Yeah, and I, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's called a revocable trust because you can make changes to it all the way up until the point that you pass away. Definitely. And those changes are very easy to make, really, just the process of funding and moving your assets. That is probably the most time consuming, a few hours for people. But once that's done, making changes to the plan is very easy. Let's go back to the trust specifically, because one of the things that I often see when when working with a family is deciding when when their children you know should get their inheritance, if you will. And that's where I, I really love having a you know a revocable living trust because basically the sky's the limit as you well know on how you tell that story and when you want the kids to receive it how much they get how often do they get principal or do they only get interest can you walk us through like some common scenarios that you typically see with families you know dividing up trust shares and and how that operates Yeah, of course. So the good thing about a trust, you can tell I have little kids in this description. It's kind of like a choose your own adventure, really. I mean, you are designing to be what you want it to be. And a lot of it is a little bit subjective based on what were you like at 25? Would you have been ready to handle $200,000 check arriving in your mailbox? Or would you have just gone to the bar? So a lot of it is subjective. Most people want to provide some start money for their kids somewhere around college graduation to mid-20s. Most people want all of the money to be out to their kids by mid-30s. Obviously, there are people on either side of the spectrum, the people who think, my kids are just going to get it all at 18, and I'm not going to worry about it. And the people who say, I don't want them to ever inherit a lump sum. I want them to just have their needs provided for. So the trust can achieve all of those goals. The thing that is great is that I draft my trust so that the guardian or trustee can pay for the child's needs until he or she is ready to inherit. 
So like you're not having to figure out how much college is going to cost in 10 years. You just say, I trust this person to decide what my child needs annually, quarterly for college, for education, for healthcare, et cetera, just as you would be making those decisions if you were still alive. The other thing that's good is to not have the distributions, the gifts to your kids happen automatically. Instead, you should have your kids request the gifts. So let's imagine that you get, you know, 50% at 25 scenario. The child should request that money from the trustee rather than the trustee paying the child that money automatically. Reason being that you never know what sort of financial situation your kid's going to find himself in. Even if you have the most responsible child in the world, could still have been in a car accident, being sued over, you know, whiplash or something like that. And to receive a check outright would be to subject the child's inheritance to possible creditor or lawsuit issues. Whereas, you know, if a child is fine and there's no creditor issues, there's no lawsuit issues, he or she can request the check and it's fine rather than having that money fall into hands that you would not want it to. And I think that you just hit on something I jotted, two things I just jotted down that was I wanted to follow up on is having that trust actually gives you an additional layer of protection, just like you managed, just like you laid out. Like if your child is involved in a car accident and unfortunately, you know, somebody passes away and they're proved to be at fault, their inheritance cannot be touched through some kind of lawsuit. And so you know, that's one example. Another good example is say they get married and the marriage doesn't work out. Their inheritance, their trust stays with them. It's, it's not applicable in divorce proceedings, if you will. Yes, exactly. And if you want them to keep their money in trust until their kids are old enough to inherit, you can design it so that their kids will inherit it rather than it going to potentially, I don't know, a bad marriage or a divorce situation like you described. Yeah. And that's where it gets back to the storytelling ability with a trust is, you know, pretty much infinite. So and let me just ask that. I'll ask two questions. How important are trustees? and How important are guardians? So in my experience, people have the hardest time deciding on guardians. And I'm no exception. I mean, it is terrible in every way to imagine someone else raising our children. I mean, we love our children and we don't want anything to happen to us or to our family relationships. So I find that my clients struggle most with guardians. At the end of the day, I think it's an important decision. I think that the trustee might be an even more important decision because this is the person you are trusting with your family's financial future. This isn't just someone who is going to keep the money for six months and then pass it off. This is someone who is engaging as the ongoing manager of your money. And so to the extent that that person has a good working knowledge of finance and of family interactions, and it goes without saying that this needs to be someone that you trust. They will have access to your money. There's always the mechanism of a loss to someone later, but that is a worst case scenario. You want to choose someone who's going to do a good job. You also want to choose a few backups. So I think that my dad is going to be a great trustee, but he's also 75. So 
dad until incapacity and then sister and then wealth manager, for example, is a great lineup. The last thing I'll say about that is you want to design your trust to make sense for your future life and who can remove the trustees. So like, do you want your kids to be able to remove a trustee if he or she's not doing a good job? Do you have this trust just because you're not sure your kids are going to be able to manage the money? Who's going to be making these decisions? How does it play out? How many different people do you have in the lineup? Because you really want these documents to work for the long term, not just for the next five years. Do you often see that the guardian is the same person as the trustee or, or obviously vice versa? And, and if so, do you recommend for or against that? So I would say maybe 30% of the time it's the same person. And the way I explain it is this. Sometimes the person who is the most nurturing, who you want to take care of your kids, is not also the best with money. And so do you want that check and balance? Do you want that oversight over your guardian and how the money is spent? Or do you have just one person in your life that you trust with absolutely everything? And that's going to be the person who's going to take care of it. Yeah, I would agree with you there because with all the family estate plans that I've worked on over the last 10 plus years, typically there's there's always somebody different. There's always the guardian is not the same as a trustee. And then there's the backups too, because I, I agree with you. You have certain people that personally, I would feel more than couple comfortable raising my kids, but from a money management standpoint, that's a whole different ball game. So yeah, I mean, it's just a completely different skill set for most people. I mean, <laughs> occasionally we have the client who has the brother who is both the go-to guardian and also is a wealth manager or lawyer yeah. or CPA or something like that. And then it's a good fit. But by and large, it's better to have the check and balance. And that's the thing with, with my practice, because of the, really the type of firm that I run, the family office, like I am personally involved in my clients' lives. And I'd say half to maybe three quarters of the time, like I end up being a backup trustee, which I know some advisors shy away from, but to me, I want to make sure that I'm there taking care of my clients if they're not. So Yeah. And I think that that just really speaks volumes about you. I'm working with so many clients with wealth managers. I will tell you that that's not always the case, but with our shared client, they wanted you as their backup trustee without hesitation and felt completely comfortable with that selection. And so I think that that really just speaks volumes about your involvement in your clients' lives. Well, thank you. Because I, I, I remember we were shooting emails back and forth and you had, you had asked me, hey, do you feel comfortable doing this? And I'm like, I better call her because I'm like, was there like a, a meeting behind that? I didn't know because like, I just, it just comes natural to me. So again, I want to be there for my clients and, and make sure that they're, they're taken care of. To a few personal questions I had for you. So how did you end up getting into estate planning? So of all the law that you could have practiced, how did you end up focusing on estate planning? So as I mentioned at the beginning of our interview, I really wanted to demystify the estate planning process for people. When I came out of law school, I worked at a firm where I did kind of jack of all trades. It was a big firm, but I wound up being kind of the go-to associate corporate litigation, estate planning, you name it. And then I worked at big firms for a number of years, focusing on litigation, actually. 
And then after I had my son, Rowan, my first son, I looked around my neighborhood and I said, look at all of these people who do not have an estate plan. This is a need that my community has that no one is filling. And I think that they're not having that need filled because they have no idea how much it's going to cost. They do not have someone who is relatable who can help them. And, you know, someone who frankly has the education and is going to solely focus on this. I see a lot of estate planners in Atlanta who handle divorces and car wrecks and estate plans. So to my mind, that's really not what you want. You want someone who's going to be singularly focused on estate planning. So I thought, why don't I start a flat fee estate planning firm to serve my neighborhood? And it's really just grown from there. And the reason that I love it is that I am interacting with the people who would be my friends, who are my friends, people who are planning for their families, who are planning for their family businesses, multi-generational planning, where my clients are worried about their parents, their parents are worried about their adult children. And it helps me feel like I'm really making a difference in people's lives and in a way that I can completely relate to. I, I have two little kids and I've recently had to make these guardianship decisions. I have aging parents and have had to talk through their estate plans with them. So that's how I wound up with estate planning, but it's just, it's the best fit for me. So along those lines, I, I know you have two young boys, right? Two are boys, yes. okay? Yes, two, two, two five-year-olds. I know when we, before we hit the record button, you live and, and practice in, in Atlanta, but now I find you in, in Montana. How has COVID been for, uh, for your family? So we were talking about this a bit before you started recording, which is that COVID has just been a disaster, you know, for, for so many people, including me. But I have really tried to recognize how lucky I am in the scenario. And here's what I mean by this. I, I, we have been lucky enough to have our nanny. She moved in with us a week after COVID started. She helps with my kids' school. She takes care of them, allows me to continue working full-time and my husband working full-time. She's administering the virtual school. So really, I can't complain for a second about management of children. At the same time, having to wear the hat of parent and business owner and spouse and child, etc. It's a lot of hats to wear and it can be draining a lot of the time. The last thing I'll say about COVID, I think the thing that was the biggest challenge for me is the unpredictability and how sudden it was. Obviously, I'm a planner. It's my work focus. And so to have this sudden life change dropped in my lap has been a tremendous disruption. At the same time, I think all things considered, we are faring incredibly well. On my second uh, episode, I had Dr. Laura Hutchinson. So if you want to you know, listen to that, you can go back to tammacapital.com forward slash number two or episode two. And that was one thing that we talked about at great length was the, the self-care that people need to do, especially married couples, married couples with kids, because the kids are under stress. They handle it different than what adults do. And that was one of the the topics that we talked about at great length is especially if you're working at home with your spouse, like with Teresa, it's like I was passing her all the time, but basically treating her like a coworker. I'm like, wait a minute, that's my wife. That's not just, you know, another, you know, random person I'm passing in the hallways, if you will. 
and, and, and likewise. So I think it takes a lot more communication with each other, you know, as spouses, as partners with our kids. And I, like, I fully admit, like, I, that's an area where I feel like I fail. Like I, every day I keep trying to be better dad, better husband, better advisor for my, my client families. And there's days where it's a struggle because you're wearing all these different hats and, you know, there's, there's more pressure, but to your point, like we also talked about, when I look at the, the community that I live in and here in Metro Detroit, there's such a social economic divide between people that are actually thriving through this and people that are still really struggling that are, don't know where their next meal may come from or you know how they're gonna keep their kids from falling behind in school because they're virtual and they can't necessarily work virtual. And those are the things that I wonder about that will have you know, long lasting consequences from this virus. I mean, it's unfortunate we feel for families that have been affected, that have had people pass away, but there'll be a time when the pandemic runs its course, but the aftermath of it will still be with us for a long time. Yeah. I mean, I really think looking back on the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, I was in such a different place than I had recently graduated from law school and was a new attorney and was just so much more vulnerable to the economic pressures of, of that recession. And I think that that has made me feel so much more grateful and aware of how fortunate I am this time around. And I think you're right, the stark contrast between how well we have fared and how terribly so many people have fared is really jarring and really terrible to think about the economic disparities and the people who are not able to put food on the table or lost their, you know, minimum wage jobs. It's just, I've been very fortunate to not be in that camp. So I want to flip this completely and go in a positive manner. And so as as we you know wrap up our conversation, the question I ask of all my guests is what is the one thing or multiple items if you will what do you love the most about being a parent so that is the hardest of the questions oh i mean you could have asked me anything about estate planning like you said i have two little boys three and five and yesterday we were getting our family photos taken for our christmas cards and (laughs) the photographer kept telling them hold hands or hug each other. And that just inevitably devolved into them just trying to beat the heck out of each other, knock each other over, hit each other in the head. And so, so much of my time is kind of like (laughs) block and tackle, keep these kids alive and from killing each other. But here we are on the 29th of October. And so I think the thing that is my favorite is reliving all of the fun things of childhood through my kids' eyes. So Halloween is in two days, watching them get dressed up in their costumes, even if Halloween is pared down this year, is so fun and reminds me of all of my awesome holiday memories and thinking forward to Thanksgiving and Christmas and just reliving all of that joy and excitement through my little kids. It's the best. I think that's a perfect way to wrap up our conversation. Kristen, I can't thank you enough for being on the show. I think hopefully we've we've demystified what estate planning is and maybe crushed a few stereotypes along the way. 
we'll put a link in the show notes to uh, your firm bequest down in Atlanta and your contact information. So people want to reach out to you directly, they'll have the ability to do that. So thank you very much for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Thanks so much for the opportunity. It's great talking with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.